Today I'm with Ling Smook. She is the COO of the independent, the now very independent um, Hacker Noon publication that has over, I think, I think David, when I spoke to David, he said one to two million readers per month. Mm -hmm. And he said, I think eight million different page visits per month, mm -hmm. which is a lot, which is so cool. So I'm sure that takes a lot of crazy operational stuff that you get to deal with day in and day out. And um, I'm under the impression that you were kind of the big mover and shaker in the mm -hmm. movement off of Medium and onto this independent equity funding round process for Hacker Noon. So could you tell me a little bit about uh, what the vision was there? Why did you decide to crowdfund with equity? Mm -hmm. So yeah, thank you, Amber, for having me here today. Uh, very yeah, excited. Of course, me too. I think I used to do a lot more um, talk shows than this when I used to lead the Asia division for a university. And then I kind of like stepped back being a mom for like two years and now like slowly going back on the road. So Hacker Noon, like you say, um, requires just a lot of things, you know, behind the curtains. Mm -hmm. um, and one of those is um, basically making sure that we're taking care of our people, making sure that we, um, we, we pay attention to our community. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the 8 million page views that you mentioned, it comes from our community of readers and of writers. We have 8,000 writers and 200,000. impressive. <laughs> I mean, yeah, a lot of them are just, you know, like founders or CEOs like, you know, yourselves. And it's, it's, it's really more like they want to amplify their voices. So they use Hacker Noon as a platform to, to help them with that. Um, but we do have 8,000 of them and we have 200,000 daily readers. Some of them are these writers community themselves but we 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 have a problem to solve uh, back in uh, I think May of 2018 which is we are super dependent on a larger company a larger platform um, everything else is built by us so you know the recruiting of the stories mm -hmm. um, the distribution of the stories making sure that you know people's uh, getting even more uh, readers for, for for their content but you know, the platform that we were building on did not, dis did not agree with that. So we, we had to do something about it. So my idea was, okay, so we have a community. We were running a pretty profitable business. Maybe if we tell our story to the community, you know, they would rally behind us. And I think this is what I can confidently say after running the equity crowdfunding. Uh, before that, I, I didn't know. An equity crowdfunding success really depends on whether or not you already have like a large army of like supporters. Hmm. And luckily we already have that and we just kind of, you know, dive more into our, you know, already is our strength. Mm -hmm. And we kind of tell them that this is what we, you know, the, as the business is struggling with, you know, as a reader, as someone who benefits from the site, would you like to own a piece of the site? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and people are like, yeah, like uh, I would be on board with that. And I'm very, very, very grateful for, for uh, people's rallying behind us. I, I think yeah. that's the biggest blessing. Yeah. yeah, that's a huge blessing. I feel like that's kind of a big trust fall. Mm -hmm. I, it would make me nervous. Were you nervous when you started this? Like, did you ever have the thought, like, what if people don't rally behind us? Or mm -hmm. were you fairly confident? 
yeah, I did spend three months like feeling tremendously pressured by the thought that what if no one shows up? Right. You know, there's there's definitely that possibility um, because people are busy. You know, you know, we're talking about. Uh, the attention economy all the time. People have so many different channels and platforms that they can pay attention to. Why Hakanoon, right? Like, mm -hmm. why this one site? I think the thing that really resonates with people is is the word independent, like indie tech site. Like, people just like to know the story behind it, and people are oftentimes super surprised that it's run by a team of two. I mean, at the time, it was totally a team of two, me and my husband, David. Um, and since then, we've recruited a, a bunch more awesome people, developers, you know, marketers. But yeah, back then it was just a team of two, and people were just kind of, I think, gain, you know, giving us some sympathy for the fact that we're pretty small, pretty in independent, and pretty ballsy for that matter. Yeah. You know, like going up against these big guys and be like, "We're gonna go," you know, outside yeah. of your platform, ta-da. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, not just moving away from the platform, but also turning down turning down offers to be acquired as well. Yeah, yeah, we we were panicking a little bit um, when the news hit that we couldn't. Um, well, we could still operate under the medium banner, but we could not really monetize any of that, and that was one big thing for us. We were running it. David was running it for three years without really. Mm -hmm. um, doing anything like, you know, monetary wise. And then we found kind of a perfect way to do so without kind of um, distracting people, you yeah. know, because the main thing we want people to be able to get from Hacker Noon is the reading experience and, you know, awesome tech story. How do we incorporate advertisers and, you know, ways so that we could you know, sustainably run the site. So we found a perfect way for that. We put, you know, banner up, you know, on the site, just everyone can see it. No one is forced to click on it. No one, yeah. you know, like... You're not they, tracking cookies. Yeah, <laughs> there, there's no tracking whatsoever. So people can just either choose to engage with it or ignore it. So I think that's a perfect way for a very tech and sometimes security-focused uh, um, audience, right? So they, they, they feel fine with that. We have no complaints. Now, that has been running for eight months until Medium told us that, well, you guys know what? We can't allow third-party sponsorships anymore on the site. And mm -hmm. we were really confused with that because the term third-party to us means that's anyone that's not Hacker Noon or Hacker Noon readers. Because, you know, we're yeah. serving one group of people and that's the readers. Um, so Medium really is a third-party to us. But, you know, that aside, they told us that we have to do something about it. You know, we can choose to either, okay, just take that offer. They did offer us something pretty laughable, but they did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, or we can do something else. So we, we did do something else. We, we reached out to a couple of other uh, people, you know, some blockchain companies, um, some longtime, you know, readers of Hacker Noon, just to, like, gauge what, you know, people are thinking about this, small group of people. Um, most people say, sure, like, I would be happy to help you, support you, acquire you, whatever, but, you know, you still have to work on this company. Mm. And, you know, basically nothing would change except for that your ownership would be, like, from 100% to, like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, something really small. Yeah. So when faced with those choices, we decided that it's just a lot better for us to still own the business, but... Um, you know, like just do it on our own terms and mm -hmm. raise some money instead of 
just giving a piece of our business to someone yeah. else. So how many different publishers do you think were affected by Medium's new no third-party policy? Was it quite a few or are you kind of oh rare? Oh my goodness. I think every single publisher, you know, who bets their business on Medium is definitely severely affected by, by this news. Mm. Um, a lot of them actually made the move to just leave Medium before this already. Mm. I mean, it, it might be some other factors, but a lot of them have, have left the, the platform already. And I think since then, um, a couple tens, hundreds, I don't know, have also uh, decided to do something, something else. At the very least, like diversify, mm -hmm. um, you know, the uh, different channels, not just on Medium. Okay. Yeah. Do you know how many have decided to go fully independent and kind of crowd-owned like you have? Um, I do not know. Okay. Yeah, I, I do not know the, the exact number. I've been just like laser-focused on Hackanoon yeah. and like how to really deal with this news and like what to do with the fund, what to do with the investors like mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. we crowdfunded. Yeah. yeah. And so moving forward, um, it's crowd-funded and crowd-owned to some extent, mm -hmm. but how um, you're still making money through sponsorships just now on an independent site, right? Yeah, so we can't uh, currently monetize our main asset, which is Hackanoon.com, because Hackanoon.com is still hosted on Medium. Oh, okay. However, we can monetize anything that is not powered by the Medium infrastructure. So, for example, we have a podcast mm. as well going okay. on um, that has been monetized since day one. So there's that. Uh, we also have a couple of sm like other smaller channels, like event sponsorships. We're actually going to London in two days from now, doing an event um, in Shoreditch in uh, central London. We also did... What, um, what kind of an event are you doing? Uh, so it's going to be called Crazy Tech Stories. And, you know, our model is really simple. We invited a bunch of people who are based in whatever location, um, who have written to Hackanoon. So last time we did, um, it was a tech event at GitHub. And we literally just like filter for people who live in San Francisco who have written for Hackanoon and like you know ask if they would like to give a talk um, so we did the same thing with the London event and you know seven people would um, like give talks at the event and we uh, we have um, uh, marketed the, the the event for the past uh, few days very cool yeah that's very neat um, so aside from event sponsorships and podcast sponsorships we also pre-selling <laughs> um, sponsorships for the new site so this okay. is like our way of being That's right. a yeah. little creative here um, since we can't really monetize on the medium platform right now we um, would like to get like a wait list basically of people who believe in us enough even though they haven't seen the new site um, to just kind of like okay you want to buy this many clicks for um, a discounted price, you know? And a lot of people have bet that we would be able to pull it off and the new site would be able to bring as much traffic. So yeah, that's kind of reducing the risk on both sides. So those are, I think, the main three. And I also just recruited recently one sales uh, person that would help me uh, more with like other product and services that mm -hmm. uh, we might want to do in the future. That's very neat. So when will um, Hacker Noon be on its own independent platform? Ooh. Would any, everyone wants to know that. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, it's, um, it's been a long time wait for sure, but I think it's, it's worth it because um, 
so our developers uh, team have been working so hard um, even before the crowdfunding because we just we just kind of like bet on ourselves that the crowdfunding would work and already hire someone you know okay. before it started and with the hope that um, it's going to turn out great and it did so we now have a team of two full-time developers and they have been very very hard at work for the past three months and every day we going to the beta site you know finding some new thing mm -hmm. we very very hopeful finger crossed I want to say I don't want to say one uh, definitive date but it's like it's just right around the corner it's, it's very very okay. close so probably yeah. in the next few months um, no, I think we're talking days or even weeks. Wow, yeah. <laughs> very exciting. Yeah, it is. So it might be it might be out by the time this podcast is out. We'll see. Oh my goodness, it might. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's really <laughs> cool. It's like time traveling and trying to imagine. Yeah. Um, well, neat. So I want to back up a bit and hear a little bit about your background in um, college. So you yeah. had mentioned <laughs> being on this broadcast before, doing broadcast before. Yeah. What? Where did you go to school? So I went to Brown University. Um, oh, cool. So I, th I think I even want to back up a little bit more because, yeah, my my journey um, has been really, really education-focused um, thus far. So I was born in Vietnam, and I went to just, you know, regular Vietnamese schools for the first 17 years. Well, you know, like whenever I started school. So, um, and then I actually went to India for high school for two years. So it's like this program of uh, international kids, like 200 different kids from 100 different countries. So that was, that was really, really amazing for like kind of my, uh, my, my rite of passage into like this life I have right now. It's like, opened my eyes to this like little Vietnamese local, like never been anywhere, you know, to like India. And then after that, uh, after those two years, I uh, went to the U.S. for four years in college. And I really, just some, for some reason, it was set in my heart that I want to do something with education. Um, I think it's because of the education opportunity I had, you know, that I was yeah. just thankful and I wanted to do something and give back. So I, I did a little bit of dabbling here and there, some education, some policy classes, uh, some international development, just like many, many things. What I realized I didn't want is just so much theory because, you know, that's mm -hmm. what happened a lot in, in colleges. Um, people tend to get really wrapped up into the details of the theories uh, instead of like looking into like solving um, like like actual companies problem or actual real world problems i'm not like saying theory does not matter it totally does to me though it's just like i i don't i want more than just theory yeah you want so, to get your hands dirty and... i do i do I, I i and you know i did and i still do so in sophomore year after like going through so many theory classes for different concentrations that's what they call it at brown like not majors but concentrations um i decided that you know what like all of these classes will not teach me a lot maybe i try to just start something on my own and like learn from it so i uh, in the basement i still remember of my sophomore year um dorm i like came up with this idea for like a tet like TED conference slide, but like for middle school students. And it's gonna be longer than just conferences and talks. It's gonna be like teaching them like hands-on skills, but then it'll like 
accumulate into like a presentation of some sort into the uh, at the end and so it's called creative kit project and it's been going on for I think now seven eight years now like back wow. then which is like my little like pet you know like summer camp project that I could could just go back to but now it's become um, a lot bigger than myself it's become its own nonprofit it's like con constantly funded by um, by different organizations in Vietnam and it's graduated I think um, about I want to say a thousand students. Wow. Like, yeah. So, so yeah, it has become its own thing. But from that experience, I, I realized that, oh, that's where I, like, that's the kind of thing I want to do. I want to get my hands dirty. I want to be super involved into the community. And I just want to be able to create something that's bigger than myself. Like, you know, just the name, the brand, the whatever. Like, I don't need my name to be on there for it to be a successful thing. Like, it just mm -hmm. needs to be something that runs on its own. So that's why whenever I get the opp opportunity to, like, you know, run Hakanoon alongside with, with, with David, I was just like, yeah, this is it goes this goes back to my desire to just do something a lot bigger than myself and I think I'm going to be very good at it but I skip ahead you know a lot of the story there I mean I did uh, become a mom I did kind of um, worked for two three years at this university um, that's San Francisco based actually it's called Minerva and okay. they yeah so I worked for Minerva for three years and they were really ambitious they tried to kind of um, reimagine, you know, how college campus yeah, that's, would work. I've only heard a little bit about Minerva, yeah, but did? they, it, it's like the, it's less, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's something like it's less um, campus-based and more go out and learn. You should tell the story because you <laughs> work there, so what is it? Yeah, so it's been a while, so I, I'm, I'm going to try to uh, remember. So it's um, seven different cities, so like it's like a rotation-based pro program, uh, mm -hmm. but people can opt in or opt out of the program. The main thing is that people don't have to show up to physical locations to um, to to learn, you know. So they develop this active learning platform. You know, they have they're very very tech focused. So they have this engineering team built uh, a very interactive platform where students can actually like vote and do like real-time, um, you know, polling and whatnot in class, uh, interacting one-on-one -on -one or three-on-one -on -one with a professor. So that's, that's, I mean, I was sold on, like, the very first time I listened to it. Um, the managing director of Asia actually uh, gave a talk at a job that I was working on. I was a teacher at the, at the, at the time, and I listened to the story of Minerva and was like, oh, this is perfect. I mean... I'm just gonna ask him if I can help with anything because I'm a teacher, you know, I was a teacher at the time, maybe I can talk to more students about it. Basically the idea is global, you know, rotation, seven different cities, active learning, um, you know, uh, a lot of hands-on community services, you know, because outside of, if they don't have a physical campus, what are they gonna do? Like they, they will need, you know, something to do in the city. So there's a lot of local integration and like learning more about the actual culture of where they, you know, will visit. And I, I just thought that was such a neat um, idea. So yeah, I came on board, I think in 2014, as the regional uh, director of Southeast Asia. And I worked like that for three years. So <laughs> what, what does that role do? I mean, this is it basically That's a unique position. <laughs> it's like an 
evangelist kind of role, basically for um, for the Southeast Asia, you know, part of the world for Minova, because at the time no one knew what Minova was, mm -hmm. and um, I mean, it's anything from like going to campuses, going to different high schools, talking to parents, setting up partnerships. Um, doing a bit of social media there as well, anything, because Southeast Asia is really, really into social media, especially Facebook. So mm. have to like build like a big Facebook presence there. Um, a lot of talks as well. So like, you know, when you're like talking about the this idea of a, a new university, like you basically have to convince people that this is cool. And um, I see myself more like as a enthusiast and education person that's just like really, you know, believing in, in that model. And it was just going around talking about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So with all your background in education, um, actually right now I'm a visiting scholar at Stanford through the education department, even oh, though that's not are? what my training is in. Yeah. yeah. Traditionally. And, uh, What's that been for you? Uh, good. Interesting. I've gotten to sit in on the center of adolescence. That's where I'm at. Mm -hmm. They, um, I've gotten to sit in on some of their research meetings mm -hmm. and it's been interesting because they've been discussing like a project for understanding aspects of a liberal arts education that contribute to the development of purpose and mm -hmm. specifically beyond the self-purpose, which is another theme that you've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's, it's actually in one of those research meetings that I first heard about Minerva oh, okay. because they were trying to get a bunch of universities that were pretty unique from each other. Yeah, they're very big on like intentional university. That's like the word they use. Cause yeah. you know, there's like some stats about how most of college, you know, costs and stuff goes to administration and not really to like, you know, like college has gotten like two or three times as uh, more expensive, but not mm -hmm. two or three times better, mm. you know, since yeah. like that research started. So, yeah. yeah. So in your opinion, I mean, the divide between the tech world, which you're now in, and mm -hmm. education is kind of an interesting one because it, it seems like the tech world sort of snubs their noses at education right. and is like, well, just drop out, just drop out and do startup. Mm -hmm. um, what's kind of your take on that split? I don't think that you, you know, as, as someone who has worked in tech for a while now, you can omit altogether the value of just physical connection and the value of personal communication right like there's like when I was working at Minerva a mm -hmm. lot of the concerns from the parents were like okay so how can you get like the real like the full experience from just an, a platform that like you just see on the screen um, and it's valid you know like to some extent and I think the most important thing when it comes to learning is just like the sense of purpose the sense of like like they actually are receiving something or doing something that like they actually want to do and uh, you know it depends on like different like learners style right like mm -hmm. some people are very self-motivated and can just do mm, can just like go out there you know like mm -hmm. get their hands dirty or um, actively seeking new things to learn but some people need a little bit more guidance and that's where that's a value of a teacher, you know, like they serve as a guide and as someone who was a teacher before, I don't think we can just say, oh, like the tech cannot replace the teachers. Um, you know, like there's, there's a lot of time that tech can elevate and amplify, you know, what a teacher can do, what a guide, guide can do. But at the end of the day, you still need like that human touch and that mm. physical connection. So I think that divide, instead of being a divide, it should be kind of like something that works, you know, in, t in tandem and like 
elevate and help enhance each other. Which is, you know, maybe a teacher instead of having a lot of administrative tasks and do a lot of like manual things that it's not really teaching. Mm-hmm. Now they can focus on like, okay, how do I help my students uh, become better? Um, and then how you know this whole machine learning can just like help me. Um, like summarize what my students want, you know, like mm-hmm. as a whole, and like now I can like focus on like lesson planning instead of just like going through every single entry. Yeah. So uh, what? I mean, just for personal interest, because of the project that's going on in the center that I'm at, and yeah. as you've spoken a lot about purpose yourself and yeah. education, what in your experience do you think contributes? How does education help? either develop or help people pursue purpose? Hmm, that's a good question. I think for me personally, it's mm-hmm. not really any one class or any one theory or one teacher per se, or yeah. So it's, it's, it's the experience and the kind of discourse that I have with mm-hmm. many, many people over time that contribute to who I am today. So education should be viewed as like this journey, you know, for you as a person. Just kind of like if 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 I take just that one class or if I just, you know, have one conversation with that person, I will feel very interested in that topic. But that's where it's at. Just, just feel very interested. It sparks my interest. How do I continue that conversation and how I put that, contextualize that into something bigger? I think that's the purpose of education. And it's really hard to do even within four years. I don't think it's something that people yeah. can just fully um, develop within four years. But, you know, that kind of desire to just continue the conversation and put that into something um, bigger, you know, contextualize it and, you know, like juxtapose it with something else. Um, that is the purpose of education. And I think that's why it's just going to continue for the rest of your life, right? Like right now I'm still learning a lot. I was joking with David that I, like, I feel like I'm doing my MBA right now, you know, it's just like learning all of the nitty gritty of like what it takes to run a company, you know, into it, QuickBooks and payrolls and yeah. <laughs> HR and all of that. I feel very much immersed and educated right now. Yeah. yeah. You're getting a crash course in a whole new, Definitely. a whole new area. Absolutely. So you had mentioned like a diversity of voices and people and ideas kind of interacting and that education might be sort of just a ripe nexus for having all these experiences. Right. Not that it's something you can't get by just having a crash course and helping run this startup. Yeah. Um, but some people might need a guide through that. Yeah. Um, in the, so how do you think that Hacker Noon kind of advances this purpose? Because you've mentioned to me a few times kind of similar themes of like, well, there's a lot of different voices and decentralization is important to the end of having a lot of different voices. Right. Do you see those as connected or was that just sort of a serendipity, accidental happenstance that you found yourself in a position of, a, of running a platform, yeah. <laughs> the nitty-gritty of running a platform that's so diverse. Yeah, to be really honest with you, it's a little bit of both. I don't think we will be where we are today without, you know, some kind of luck and, you know, like fate, you might even say, involved. But a lot of it 
um, you know, the intention a lot of times comes after we have been put in this very lucky position, like what do we do to really make the most out of it? And I think what we did really well is to kind of have been this reflection of the internet to people, you know, like mm. why other sites, uh, other forms of journalism, it's, it's a different kind of internet, you know, at times. It's like very... Uh, you know, very heavily edited, very, very intentional, and people mm. kind of kind of know what to expect when you go to the site. Like, when you come to Hacker Noon, it's really just like, like it's like <laughs> a free-for-all kind of a thing. I mean, we do have an editorial process, but it's really more like, is it too promotional? Is it, you know, like plagiarism? Like, something like that. And like, what about the grammar? But in terms of like policing what people's opinions is like we don't do that so really like I think that's what attracted people a lot to mm. Hakanoon just kind of wow I can have my own voice I can have my own story and it's a contributors driven network so like anyone can contribute that's awesome and I think a lot of times people don't even realize that until like they actually go through the process submitting their first story and the second story and the third story and, the, and they're like oh this is actually a thing like people just like just like that like you accept my story just like that so i think like at the end of the day like just as a whole we create this really cool place for people to be able to just um you know express their own opinion ex express their own voice and it's decentralized just like you say you know it's whatever the internet is we reflect it and you know at, at a time um, we didn't even know what blockchain was or Bitcoin was, but then the internet said, now this is one of the things that people really want to talk about. So now you see this like influx of submissions on blockchain or Hacker, uh, on Hacker Noon, and we did not really set out to do that at all. We just kind of saw it and we ride the wave and, you know, we learned a lot along the way as well. And I think we're going to continue doing that, just kind of um, wait for the submissions and review them and there yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah, I know that that kind of echoes my experience because in academics, it is such a grueling process to get papers published and oh, it yes. takes oftentimes years. The first publication I ever had took like five years to go five from years. running the study to getting it actually published. Yeah. And that was maybe a little bit on the long side, but it's definitely not unheard of. It's not it's not all that rare. And so when I first published on Hacker Noon, I had that same experience as like, whoa, <laughs> this is like refreshing that I can I can submit something and the review that you get back instead of it being this really critical peer review process, which mm. is good and it is important, it's just a different beast from something like Hacker Noon where you're publishing and you're getting the review back in the comment section, yeah. not in a pre-print process. And I think that that could, that it's valuable because you see like you, the, the analogy of like riding a wave, you can see how the wave crashes and how people have reacted to it and then mm -hmm. how subsequent blogs and articles are written mm -hmm. and that trajectory over time. Right. It's sort of a unique voice that you don't necessarily see in other outlets. Yeah, I mean, and by lowering, lowering the barrier to entry, right, we invite just more people who typically are not a writer you know, like they probably wouldn't share this story otherwise. But we tell them that, like, look into all of these other stories. You know, we, you know, you don't have to have your story super polished or your writing being on this and that level. Mm -hmm. You still can publish with us. And I think 
um, and we also don't pretend to be like, no, this is like the peak of journalism, you know, this is the Wall Street Journal or whatever, yeah. like it has gone through like multiple fact checks and like multiple, which is very valuable. You need that kind of journalism. You need peer reviews for academic paper because people are going to base this academic yeah. paper on like actual, like, you know, like Important life decisions. or death stuff or like, you yeah. know, things that like really, really going to affect your life. I mean, yeah, off tangent a little bit. Um, the whole anti-vaccine thing was based on one faux academic paper. Yeah. It was it was scary, but you know, it didn't get disputed until like 20 years after, but it was yeah. one academic paper that people like have held on to the belief yeah, that Yeah, damage done. Yeah, yeah. The, the damage has already done two decades after, but <laughs> So how do you address this in because, I mean, it, along those kind of lines, mm -hmm. um, you're, you're not fact-checking. It is a different beast. Do you think that the readers are aware of this and the contributors are aware of that? Yeah, I think for the most part, people are aware of it. But we do run into situations where we have to put out fires at times. Um, just like two days ago, we kind of just randomly went out you know, of our way to like check this one article and we saw that it's actually all already been published by someone else with like a different name on mm. a different site. Uh -oh. And like we do do that because, you know, a lot of the times people who like just blatantly, blatantly pressurize, like they don't even change a thing. Like you can just Google the whole thing within mm. the quotation mark and then you'll see like something else. So we do try to do that. But, you know, sometimes things fall through the crack and this was that one time. So what we did was we immediately uh, noticed the writer that he has violated our rules, which clearly say that you have to, you know, have the rights to all of your words. You know, you can't just like mm -hmm. use someone else's. Um, and we um, kind of took away the, the, the right of the writer to, uh, to submit on Hakanoon. I mean, other instances, we have someone who talked about something controversial, but I mean, it depends on what you as a platform, as, as, as um, a publication, consider controversial, right? Like, is, um, like, what is the meaning of hate, for example? Or, mm -hmm. you know, what, uh, what is a topic that makes certain group, you know, uncomfortable? Like, we can't polish, like, too nitty-gritty into that, but I think we do still need an umbrella policy into, like, no plagiarizing, like, that's for sure, and kind of no inciting like like actionable violence yeah you know something like that um controversial you know some like that guy was talking about biohacking <laughs> you know s certain sponsors actually would not take that and we did um kind of like lose one sponsor over that but we wouldn't take that one article off our site um mm. you know it, it really is not in accordance with our ethos to do that kind of policing mm-hmm yeah. So uh, how do you decide, like, which... You're getting about 25 articles a day, I mm -hmm. think, right? 20 to 30, yeah. 20 to 30 a day. How do you decide, like, the ranking order and how you organize things? And So it really just um, before, it's first come, first serve, because we only have two people, and that's, you know, like, we found that that's the most efficient way. Um, and that means, like you know, most of the articles will at least get someone to look at. Now we kind of divide them into three, four rough categories. So there's general tech, there's uh, Bitcoin, 
specifically, then there's blockchain and other cryptocurrencies, and then there's uh, software development. So within those categories, uh, the editors would just look into the articles and like have their own standards um, and look into what they uh, want to review. And most of the times they would get through most of the things, but since we actually um, recently introduced this new submission system where people can uh, submit a lot easier, more easily than the medium system, so we're a little bit behind on that. But I think, yeah, for the most part, people try to just submit, um, I, I mean, uh, review the stories within the categories of their choo uh, uh, choosing and then review all of them. Um, and then they and just try kind to get of, through all of them. Okay. Yeah. And they kind of put them by preference or I guess I'm thinking like above the fold stories, below the fold stories, you mm -hmm. have like a few main ones on your site and then a few lesser oh, ones. Oh, you mean the homepage? Yeah, yeah. So the homepage is actually curated um, just by people's taste uh, for now. Also, it's, it's actually a combination of people's taste and how can we even amplify this story more? Like, would that benefit our readers to put this story on the homepage? So, oh, it's, so it's sometimes really objective, um, but sometimes it's not at all. Like, it's just like people's preferences and that's what you get for, you know, like submitting stories to a site that's run by, by you know, humans with like actual taste, right? Mm. So uh, we don't prioritize things like Oh, if I pay you, like, can I put it on homepage? Like, we never, you know, yeah. we never do things like that. Or we don't prioritize um, things that just clearly are clickbaity, like have like titles that we know, like twenty things and ten things. I mean, sometimes those listicle stuff uh, really rank well on SEO, but we recognize that most people on Hacker Noon actually prefer like honest, like long form, like in depth technical stuff. Sometimes super long winded, but mm. like those are the ones that we really really can amplify because because where else can you see like a super long article right like mo most long articles you can see is from like other like really like journalistic places and mm. blog style they like tend to tend to like have a short you know really clickbaity bias and we kind of go against that okay yeah so shifting gears a little bit I want to talk about um your role as a COO and kind of all of the back end of things that people might not be aware of. Um, what, like, what does the average day look like for you behind the scenes on this? I mean, Hacker Noon is actually really, it has a huge readership. Yeah. So what's it like to try to manage that many, like, contributors who now also after this equity rounding round are also kind of like little bosses. How yeah. do you manage all of that? Yeah, so right now we have 1,200 little bosses. Um, so these, are, most of them are readers of Hacker Noon. We have four full-time employees and we have an army of like 10, 15 um, contractors, you know, part-time people. So my day-to-day -day is really trying to take care of our people, right? Like just trying to do them right. And, you know, that means things like pay them <laughs> <laughs> or making sure that we can pay them. So like, you know, like the cash flow of the business actually works, making sure that we are doing things legally, uh, you know, checking all the documents. Um, a lot of it has to do with training as well, because a lot of time, you know, 
the moment people would start making money for you to like the moment they actually like losing a lot of money like there's like a point to it so it's it's kind of like this kind of curve so when we like first start onboarding people it just it it will take a long time for them to actually like fit into this whole uh, machine and like you know just be independent on their own so yeah i i invest a lot of my time on training materials and just like mm -hmm. hours of like sometimes just you know hands-on walking with people and like where they need to go um i don't pretend to know anything like like tech uh like super in-depth tech related so all of the software devel developers um those are like actually my favorite because they like teach me so much and you know for for those like i actually learn a lot from them um as well but my day-to-day -day is like yeah checking slack like making sure that there's like no fires to be put out like that's that's something that people don't see like on a front-facing side like oh it's just going so smooth uh, <laughs> you know like it's going smooth because there's just certain fires you know that you don't get to see <laughs> so so yeah a lot of my job is like okay like there's this fire to be put out like what do i do about it so checking slack um like checking outside to see like if there's any like new article like that's worth amplifying and by amplifying i don't just mean like put them on the home page we have a whole team now that does like more than that so we you know putting the articles on like different social media channels or like maybe you know possibly put it on like a podcast episode you know contacting this person to see if they want to do an AMA um, things like that so like what else can we do outside of like publishing these stories um, then right now my focus has actually been to communicate one-on-one -on -one with our writers about the move off medium because mm -hmm. a lot of people have heard of this you know uh, definitely the people who have heard of the crowdfund but not many people know that um, we are not just like talking about it. we actually moving off medium so like communicating um, on like different channels with writers making sure that they understand what that means and like um, the terms uh, if they have any questions about that so I've been working on that for the past few months now just yeah you know going through all of our writers yeah i imagine yeah. i mean that's kind of the big beast that nobody wants to deal with is moving like trying to get their traction to follow them off of a platform because you're really fighting a lot right. of of um you know an object at rest wants to stay at rest <laughs> most people don't want to move yeah. off and, and figure new no. things out the best course of action that anyone can take like in terms of their their self-interest is like nothing you know like if they have to do nothing that's great if they have to do just one thing then you really have to convince them that it's the yeah. right course of action so how difficult has that been what percent of the readers and writers are well i guess it's really just writers at this point that writers, you're yeah yeah what portion have you gotten to move over to so um, these other we haven't channels? moved anyone over yet because once the site switched that's when people can move over mm -hmm. but in terms of the people who we communicated to I think over half of our library um, have been communicated and agreed to and and like the other half it's not like they haven't heard of they have they they might have more questions and they might want to just like take a little bit more time mm -hmm. to look into it uh, but most of the people who have uh, uh, you know 
like explicitly opted into the, the to moving to the new site, um, you know, we have like multiple times, you know, have to like email them, social media, like DM them and all of that, like all one on one. So we understand that, you know, people are busy and not just like you just send them an email and that's it. Like you really have to follow through mm -hmm. with your communication. But I, I actually really enjoy that word because, you know, like they're talking about like knowing your audience all the time. Like this is how you do. Like you actually, um, you know, tell them about this and they're like, oh, by the way, my business is going in this direction and I have this like upcoming piece that I really want to amplify. Like what do you want to do? And I'm like, okay, like how that's been. Oh, great business. Yeah, like we're going to schedule it for Monday. So it's been really good in terms of kind of deepening our relationships with uh, our writers who are basically the nuts and balls of this business. And, mm. you know, because they're so important and, and we want to, to, to do them right. Yeah. You included. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're separating the wheat from the chaff in this process because, yeah. you know, the people who are dedicated to the platform are going to follow and the people who aren't dedicated... Yeah. might fall by the wayside but yeah. oh well that's that's a great that's a great way to think about it because we really want people who want us <laughs> right know? right you know who who enjoy and get a, a lot out of hack noon and if that means moving off the platform like would show you that that's that's awesome yeah so what would you say to any hacker noon writers that uh might be listening to this that mm -hmm. haven't switched off of their old communication mm -hmm. network so far? Yeah, sure. So um, I think a lot of people don't know that just by moving off Medium doesn't mean that you can't publish on both sides. So that's like, you know, first thing off the bat, like you can just do both. Uh, your you know, original articles that were hosted on Medium will still stay there. You know, you will still retain your power to edit them, even when we move off, we, we wouldn't take away your right. Um, but with the new Hacker Noon, it's going to be truly, you know, independently Hacker Noon. So we will do things like amplify the publish button. We make sure that people can actually message the writers and the writers can have a real connection and call to action to their whole community. So there's a lot of things that we're trying to do to make sure that a Hakanoon writer uh, feels, you know, great about being on Hakanoon. With that said, you can still publish on both sides. And that is something we want to also make clear. Like we don't think publishing is an, like, an all be all like just one person monopolizing the whole thing is a good thing. Like we think the more places you get to publish, the better. Um, it works better for us now that we are off the platform, but maybe we're still publishing on Medium, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, if you haven't moved over, I don't see a reason why not. Yeah. Like, it's just going to be amplify your um, uh, content and your audience even more. So. so on the back end of things again, just operating a huge, coordinating and operating a huge network of people seems like a gigantic task. How do you, just personally, how do you manage all of that? Sometimes I think I am awesome at that and sometimes I think that, <laughs> oh my God, like how do I even imagine, like I don't even know like a thousand people I you know and like to to really to be on a day-to-day -day basis like working with thousands and hundreds of thousands that just seems 
too overwhelming of a concept. But really, my day to day doesn't deal with like that number. You know, it's more like the people closest to our business, which is, you know, the people actually working on Hacker Noon and uh, the partners and the sponsors, and you know, accountants and you know people like that. Um, I think the pressure comes whenever like that something that's that's go outside like you know, of the normal day to day. So about a few weeks ago, um, Medium did send this like email to all of our contributors saying that, okay, Hacker Noon might be going around talking about moving off Medium, like watch out for that email. And that was like a day that I realized the pressure of like serving so many people because all of a sudden, and we have a lot, like we have, hundreds of messages, you know, inbound messages coming in about the move, uh, which we might have to thank Medium for because before that, like some people might not even notice there was an email coming to them. Hmm. But then on that day, like out of like the hundreds of really, really positive messages, there were some negative ones that we have to deal with. And, you know, people like just talking about um, just, you know, variety of different things. And we just have to kind of you know, put our heads down and actually deal with just the negative one because the positive ones are nice, but the negative ones are the ones that we have to tend to. So that was the day that I realized that, wow, this is what it takes to, you know, like with a lot of power comes, you know, with responsibility, you have to take care of your people and these are the people who are upset and you have to like respond to them. So it, it took us like a full one day or two to gain perspective, at least for me. Mm -hmm. But I think, I did, I did feel very grateful for that experience, even though within that one or two day window it was really, really stressful and I did like cry a couple of times. Yeah. But yeah, after that, I, I realized that people are upset because this site is actually big enough that, you know, some people are going to be upset and, you know, whatever you do. Yeah, it's a meaningful so, site if people yeah. are getting upset about it. Yeah. But that's hard. I mean, running running a startup is emotional even when it's not um even when it's not family run and this is family run which makes it probably all the more emotional it is yeah Yeah, it is Um, we have to try really really hard to kind of separate the two right even though i mean the whole concept of separating the two or work life is kind of constructed i don't think it can ever be achieved yeah i don't think so either but yeah trying to see that it's a business and it's also a family-run business, I think has been one of the most um, important learnings for me. And I think I really, I really wouldn't do it any other way, even though it's, it, it comes with its hardships, you know, it's yeah. a lot like like the goods is like a lot better, but like the bad is also more exacerbated yeah. because you can't run away from it. <laughs> yeah. So how um how you how do you manage I guess just like the constant hustle because when you're running a startup that has sort of this many people owning equity and publishing and reading um plus you're dealing then with sort of all of mediums red tape and like what you are and aren't allowed to do I imagine that you have a never-ending to-do list. Mm-hmm. How do you manage the hustle? I think I have to thank a lot of the part-time people that we recently 
um, recruited actually, we never realized how crucial it is to actually have a team. Like funnily enough, we've all been working with teams, big teams, small teams before, but for some reason with this business, we like thought for the first two, three years, yeah, it can just be like a two person business, you know, uh, or even a one man show for the first two years. But no, like it's been so tremendously helpful whenever we have more people uh, on board. So I actually have three assistants <laughs> yeah. and I want to give them a shout out. So like Tana, Hung and Daria, if you listen to this, I owe a lot of my to-do list to you because before that it was never ending, like you say. But I think with the help of all of these part-time people, like all of a sudden you realize that there's actually going to be an end date to this particular task. <laughs> it's never going to be put off forever. And, you know, if, if, if these people, even though they are part-time, can come in, believe in the business and actually, you know, move it forward, that means that other people can do the same thing too. So I think I'm very looking forward to kind of grow the team even bigger. And at some point we're going to be just obsolete and like sit back and be like, all right, like, let's hang out with Nora you yeah. know and not really have to worry because right now it's just 100% of our you know mental capacity is like split between family and Hakanu like there's never a time where we don't have to think of it at all and I, I really look forward to a day where it's going to be so efficient as a business that we might be you know, affording, not thinking about the business for one second. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, how do you, like, as you're on the on the back end of things, you're trying to grow Hacker Noon to be even bigger, mm -hmm. which means operations are going to get even more complicated. Mm -hmm. You've already started to hire, like, contractors and things to mm -hmm. help manage that. How do you make that transition, and how do you find people that you can trust mm -hmm. with kind of your baby, you know, um, yeah. trust with your startup. Maybe I'll just leave it open-ended, um, a bit open-ended like that and kind mm -hmm. of vague. But I'm curious because this is something that I've struggled with, not only on the startup side, but also just like on a research side, trying mm -hmm. to find help with research can be difficult. Right. Yeah. I think this is a weird business that actually has attracted a lot of people and mostly for the right reasons. Like people don't really expect this to be like a smooth ride, you know, whenever mm -hmm. they come on board, they like we always a lot more apologetic than we need to when it comes to things that don't run well in the business and people seem to be doing fine like they come on board they get a lot of training they understand the you know magnitude of the business and they just kind of dive their heads in i think um, the area where we have a little bit of trouble is kind of like like right now everyone is like all over the place right like we have two of us in colorado uh, we have someone, you know, uh, a couple of people in San Francisco, and then the rest is just kind of like all over the world, like India, like Ukraine, um, you know, fr France, like all over the place, Amsterdam. So uh, the the problem is we really want all of these people to feel like they're working towards the same thing and not just like by the title of their job or like by the fact that they're all on the same Slack channel. We really want to make sure that people feel appreciated and feel like they're part of the, like, like a big team. So one way we decided to 
to to uh, help with that a little bit is every now and then, every once a quarter, we have like a big team gathering. So no matter where you are, like we just kind of invite people to that same place and kind of work out of the same place for a little bit. So that helps a little bit. But I think this, the, the, the problem will only get bigger in the future, like if we ha even have a bigger team. So we might need to have more than just one like like Colorado, you know, like headquarters, which is mm -hmm. what we are right now, like our family. But <laughs> yeah, we might need to have um, some person who's like in charge of like one office elsewhere. And mm -hmm. that place could be like where, you know, all of the other people can also go to. I do believe in the value of uh, remote work, though. I think it just empowers people a lot. Um, we have, you know, most of our part-time people actually have other jobs as well, you know, as they should, because it's just a part-time job. But they feel free to do that, you know. They feel, they don't feel like um, they're just wasting their time, you know. they able to, to, to learn a lot from this job and also, um, you know, hustle with the other one as well. So I think I find value in that. And because these remote people, they don't feel obliged to um, show up for certain things, like they actually in their free time can do more things that help with the areas of the business that we want them to help with. So it's like a structure that really, really works well for us. I think in the future, we would want to have that ratio being more like 50-50, more, like more than like uh, like one, like it, it's one to three right now, and I want it to be like one to one mm -hmm. in terms of ratio of remote workers versus um, like people who work on physical locations. Yeah. yeah. So you had mentioned to me just in a conversation a while ago this idea of hustle porn. Yeah. And I want to talk about that a little bit, but first, like, where where did that term come from, hustle porn? I think. I don't know where it actually came from like first, uh, but I recently came up, um, um, came across that on Alexis Ohanians, who's the co-founder of Reddit, and he also invested on Hakanoon via, um, via his uh, VC firm. Um, and I just connected so much with that idea, like basically was explaining how a lot of people seem to enjoy that people have no lives, you know, when, when it comes to, to business. Like if you like pull off all nighters, if you're making deals left and right, if you never post a picture of like just hanging out with your family, that is like the right thing to do. Hmm. And I think that's just pretty toxic, you know, and unrealistic at the same time because no person is you know especially for someone with families like the two of us mm -hmm. um, like can relate to that because mm -hmm. you know after all of this glamour after making deals like you're gonna have to take care of that diaper and you're gonna have to make that meal you know no matter what so yeah it's um I really connect with that because I, I don't think it's healthy for anyone Family or without family, they really need to also focus on something outside of work that makes them happy. And, you know, sharing that just means that people can also uh, feel, you know, that it's okay for them to do that, especially if you are in a position of power. Like this guy, Alexis, he has a lot of power. And I would imagine the people who he's talking about, you know, like his partners or whatnot, also you know, in this position to like set a lot of examples for other people. Like yeah. if you, 
yeah you 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 have to be someone has to to go for it and say like I need time with my family and that is okay and that's healthy and it's actually helping my business and I'm all for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that that this idea of hard work is really important and I really agree with um, having that people should have a hard work ethic. Yeah. But it does seem like there is this strange hostility between um, like family, having a family life and having a work life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, um, my husband and I disagree about this, but I think that it impacts women even more than men mm-hmm. that um, if you're a woman who is trying to work, then mm-hmm. you know, posting about or talking about your family online it seems like you pay more of like the, I think in psychology it's called like the the woman penalty or the family mm-hmm. penalty, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like there is more of a strike against you than if you're a businessman who posts about having free time here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I could be wrong about that, like I said, but it does seem like you have to be kind of cautious about how you frame yourself as a woman who is married or has children and is running a startup or all of the above together. It seems like you have to be very careful about that. And I think that's Mm -hmm. unfortunate, but it's kind of a reality. It is. I think it's funny when I think there was this one instance where David and I couldn't find a babysitter for this one event that we went to in University of Boulder. So we were invited, both of us, to talk on two different panels. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just kind of like today, like someone has to take care of our daughter and we couldn't find a nanny there. We literally just brought her to the panel. And um, my uh, one of my friends actually like say, do you think that like people would be okay with that? You know, like when I whenever I finished already with the panel and like talked about how, you know, rewarding even though it's hard how rewarding it was that we actually able to tackle both like you know taking care of Nora as well as just going and you know finishing this panel mm-hmm. um yeah I think there's this weird thing when people think that if you like have kids in the picture or um, show anything that's like not the business that means that you are not doing the business I'm on the other hand I am a very proud mom and like I never really like get that and I just Mm -hmm. basically regardless of what people say about um, like mom versus working mom which by the way is also a false dichotomy like there's no mom versus working mom that's just mom like even you know yeah or you more are like doing there's unpaid. no there's no mom that's not a working mom no there's no mom that's not a working mom <laughs> because doing you unpaid work. Have, yeah yeah by the way like if you guys follow andrew yang like this guy he's like pretty out there in terms of like universal basic income and all of his ideas but he did mention like actually paying um people for whatever work they like you know like just paying people and because being a mom is unpaid work. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, if you just like have this, this, this income doesn't mean that you just like, you earn it, you know, like it's, it's, it's not something that sh- should be unpaid. But anyway, going back to my thing, it's, um, it's definitely something I felt that uh, being a woman, definitely being a mom, like sometimes people um, kind of just put that title above 
you know, my other things. And I'm very proudly, you know, being a mom. But it's, it, 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 it does make me question, like, why don't you mention that I'm also like a CEO of this, you know, CEO of this company. I'm also running this, running that. Like they would uh, rather say like, uh, like my domestic titles, which is interesting. You yeah. know, and like sometimes people also take, like, have a tendency to, to take me less seriously if like I like mention like family related stuff instead of business stuff, mm -hmm. which is also interesting. Yeah. yeah, I mean, going back to, I I'm not familiar with Andrew Yang's kind of proposed policies about um, universal basic income. Yeah, and I'm also not familiar with his like policies about. Um, about like whether or not mom, it sounds like you're saying he's implied that yeah. mom should maybe be yeah like or, or stay-at-home parents I should yeah, say yeah stay-at-home parents should like he say that everyone deserves this much money um, and he also goes off the tangent uh, a little bit saying that um, you know moms like deserve to be paid anyway so this is like a good idea mm. so yeah so yeah. I I'm I'm not sure about um, I don't know the details of that. I think what is interesting, though, in what I'm hearing as people talk about universal basic income mm -hmm. or they're talking about, like, the labor that you do every day that's mm -hmm. not necessarily paid. Actually, um, just, a like, a m couple of months ago, I did a podcast with Dan Finlay, who is mm -hmm. the MetaMask co-founder, um, and we were talking about his ideas of what the economy might look like in the future. And he talked a lot about like human trust and how um, there are things of value that we do for each other all the time on right. these micro levels that no one thinks to like reimburse with money and we wouldn't mm. we wouldn't necessarily want it to be reimbursed with money but just holding the door open was an example he gave like just mm. holding the door open for someone is an act of value mm -hmm. but we don't think of that in economic terms necessarily right. when it comes to this universal basic income stuff and parenthood, I think one of the things that's, that's, that people are identifying, even if universal basic income is or is not the right way to go about this, is that humans are intrinsically valuable. Mm -hmm. um, and yet when they come into the world as infants, toddlers, babies, mm -hmm. they have no economic standing on their mm -hmm. own. They're born into whatever household economic situation they have. And mm -hmm. that household you know, depending on how the caretakers are doing financially, that's basically how the kid is doing financially. Mm -hmm. But they're, and so if, if the parents are in poverty, totally broke, can't afford to buy food, mm -hmm. then they are at the mercy of whatever social systems might be in place to get mm -hmm. them food. But it's like something seems, if there was no welfare in the state and no like food stamps type programs and things like that, is it really right that we've constructed an economic system that ha places zero value on a human intrinsically mm -hmm. um, and that that human has to kind of work their way up through the ranks? Right. Um, probably not. Like something yeah. seems intrinsically wrong with that. On mm -hmm. the other hand, you know, something also seems something also seems intrinsically wrong with misaligning incentives away from being creative and mm -hmm. working hard and, you know, whatever, building a startup or, right. or laboring in some way. And um, just having these conversations has made me wonder 
how much our economic system is broken and maybe people are mm -hmm. arguing economics is like, or I'm sorry, politics today is so, like I can't even hardly go look through my Twitter feed anymore because I just yeah. get so worked up seeing, mm -hmm. I mean, people making comments from left and right. It's so infuriating. Mm -hmm. right. I can't even look at it. And I wonder if we're approaching this breaking point where people are like, you know what? The mom's work is valuable. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's part of why a lot of women are so ticked off with um, the way things have been throughout history and mm -hmm. why they feel like this tension between, like you and I struggle with this tension between identity as a mom, mm -hmm. identity as a working woman. Like maybe there's, I, I'm being long-winded here and I want you to talk yeah. and I want to get your <laughs> thoughts on just this idea. No, that I, I just love this whole explanation. I mean, it's, it's really... It's something like in our gut that we can't really explain, right? Like most of people, most of people when they oppose to the idea, they like bring up like things like, oh, we already spend this much money. We, you know, like all of these things, like we should make them more like efficient, whatnot. But they don't, yeah, they, they never bring, just bring up something that they would consider so fluffy. Like mm -hmm. you say, like, what about the humans? What about just the fact of being born, you know, yeah. and like living in this world? Yeah. So definitely I, I agree with that. But I don't think 1,000 would just do everything. It's really just like a starting point mm -hmm. of like, okay, you have some value, but you have to work for your values. And this is like a way to kind of, help you do that like it yeah. can't replace you know actually finding a job you know like people find yeah. values in in working as well that's why I think people yeah you know, I know a lot of moms who just like like perfectly happy with like staying at home and like taking care of their children you know nurturing and like building a family for me though I find value also in work like it's like money aside it's just when you also building something and you know like like outside of yourself you just feel like you are part of a society and you feel valued and you right. can go on so i think that's why i work it's, it's it's not because i have to really like you know my husband probably would be fine you know for the next one year or so maybe not like with the crowdfunding stuff mm -hmm. but up until that point yeah. you know was the business was probably going to be fine, but I really found values in just helping also. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah there is something intrinsically, um, just like inherently pleasurable. Like it feels good to be productive and to do hard work. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, so kind of echoing back these ideas, um, the CEO of ERA, of our company, wrote actually on Hacker Noon yeah. an article about what he's calling freeism, but it is mm -hmm. sort of this idea, this economic idea that I'm kind of dancing around here that um, maybe we need to rethink now that we're in a position where digital currencies are enabling unique transactions that weren't possible before. Mm -hmm. um, maybe we can flip economics on its head so mm -hmm. that these jobs that were previously and still are, I mean, I'm saying previously, but still are not paid, for mm -hmm. instance, being a mom. Yeah. Maybe there's a way for us to align the value, of economic value with actual human value mm -hmm. um, such that, you know, a, a baby in the world is valuable to the world, mm -hmm. not just somebody 
who now takes an adult off of the job market mm -hmm. while they're getting cared for during the day, you know? Yeah, yeah. I'm very hopeful for that. I think we're still very early in, you yeah, know, we are. in the development of blockchain, but I think one of the great ways um, for it to, to have like tangible, impactful, you know, legacy is, is that just like to level the playing field and making sure that every single thing we do, not just the things that the capitalist system says that it is a thing of value, mm -hmm. but anything we do at all would, would have a transactional value to it. I mean, wouldn't that be a great world? I, I would love to, yeah, I would, to live to that future. Yeah, <laughs> I think I agree. I mean, there's, there are some behaviors I think that I wouldn't want <laughs> to be a positive. Um, like, for instance, I think people are spending, oh, I'm going to be really controversial here. I'm probably going to make a lot of people <laughs> mad. But I feel like time spent watching, like, a show like Game of Thrones. Yeah. And to be honest, I'm going to throw myself under the bus here for a second. I haven't watched the show. <laughs> me neither. So I maybe you the only... <laughs> me and you are the only I two. Being, I'm, I might be an unfair judge because I haven't gotten sucked into the Game of Thrones verse yet. But to me, that doesn't seem like the best of human nature that I necessarily want to incentivize. Like, do I, you know, I don't know, like 10,000 years from now, if the planet is still around and all this stuff and some like futuristic archeologists come back and dig up all of these things. Do we really want them seeing Game of Thrones as like what our society, as representative of our society? I don't know. But do we want them to see like rearing young children and being creative and creating Hacker Noon and empowering people to have these dependent platforms. Yeah, I think that would be cool. Well, and all, they can just see both. And, yeah. You know, you, you they see different sides of humans. And I haven't got into Game of Thrones, but I haven't got into, I have got into series and books and like the cult culture before. So I'm like a total Harry Potter <laughs> fan. So okay. I understand like whenever people, like I ask people like, why would, you know, I need to watch Game of Thrones. They like, well, imagine if someone hasn't watched Harry Potter or like read Harry Potter. I'm like, okay, I can get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. but I think if like, like years and years in the future, I would, I would definitely want want humans to, you know, have a positive impact and just positive impression on you know an alien. Like, I don't want it to be like total. Yeah. Totally destroyed, which, you know, on worst days, yeah. it does seem like what the world well, is it does seem like looking back, archaeologists of the future might look back and be like, this is really weird that parenting isn't labor that was valued. Like, that mm -hmm. is bizarre. Just from a species standpoint, again, I guess I'm being really controversial because a, a lot of people just think that we shouldn't really have that many kids because they're worried about overpopulation and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But... It does seem like from a species perspective, mm -hmm. it's bizarre that we've created this whole like really complex economy, but we don't reward the basic the basic labor that has always existed of survival and continuing the species, you know? Yeah. It's funny. I mean I'm gonna play devil's advocate here Please a little do. bit, but Please do. um I think we're also talking pretty much in similar languages of like individualism, capitalistic values and Western society, right? Like mm -hmm. I'm from Vietnam. So whenever it comes to like attributing a money value to something, people kind of like, Ugh, look at that like that. Because 
a lot of the times the value of something is really like you say it's intrin intrinsic in yeah. <laughs> intrinsic yeah intrinsic yeah yeah you got it but whenever you put a, a money thing to it it somehow at least in like the eastern point of view you know like at least where I come from it like loses it taints it the, yeah it taints it somehow hmm. um, there's a lot of things that you know people should charge other people for and they don't like in like it's it's a very communal you know like spirit spirited community right like it's um, people you know you go to a restaurant for example here people would ask you like can I touch your baby or maybe they don't even ask at all because they just assume that no like you wouldn't touch a stranger's baby in Vietnam you go to a restaurant you just put your baby out there three little like literally three waiters will take care of her like no no problem it's just assumed that <laughs> someone will take care of your baby and you would have a good meal and people just do that like without even thinking about it and I'm talking about not just like little stuff like that like anything is directed mm -hmm. towards like the mindset of would that advance we versus like would that advance me mm -hmm. so because of that the value is really in like the I don't know, like you help me, I help you kind of, Yeah, there's sort you know, of this mentality. like ethical layer on top that adds yeah. beauty back into it. Yeah. Yeah. And That's... I think like, like a lot of transactions, even though they are not recorded formally as a transaction, like a lot of people in order to function well in society already have done some sort of you know recording of that like for example if like someone helped me with my baby I probably would give them a gift back mm -hmm. you know it's 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 definitely not like recorded in like um in like the GDP right right, right. but it definitely like between you and I like I'm a little bit like worse off because I, I you know give away some but then I'm better off because you You've know I constructed a social yeah. capital that of gift giving kind yeah. of yeah and like there's just so so many other examples too like you know bribing in like <laughs> the developing country is really just a form of efficient transactions like people <laughs> like just really don't want to go through bureaucracy and don't want to go through like all this yeah. paperwork so instead of that they just give the money straight to the people who are actually going to perform the work that's so interesting <laughs> it's like it's fascinating that i think what you're identifying is that like money seems to carry with it a type of impurity and once you mix it into a human interaction mm -hmm. the human interaction becomes like less pure or less meaningful somehow Sometimes, and that's interesting like with the eastern like like super like communal like you know like like uh, yeah just like communal value i think it can totally mean that and but i think it's it's hard like you can't really separate you know any of these value systems anymore because just everything Everything's like, an amalgamation. yeah like you can be a very communal society but you have been functioned as you know under capitalism for like ages yeah <laughs> so. yeah it's um it's interesting i'm still i'm just still trying to wrap my head around this because it seems like you've kind of identified that people sort of think of things in two spheres and i think you're right mm -hmm. so i'm i want to put words to this and i want you to help yeah, flesh sure. this out and see if you even agree because maybe you don't but what I was reading into your comments is well there's sort of these two spheres there's sort of this economic service sphere mm -hmm. where I am doing a service like shining your shoes dry cleaning your clothes driving you to the airport whatever it might be mm -hmm. and because I have hired you in that context mm -hmm. 
I then expect money to be exchanged. Mm -hmm. But in the context of like being in relationship with a friend or family member, Mm -hmm. like for instance, the baby and the mom I was mentioning earlier or the dad, um, I guess I'm being sexist. So (laughs) in the, in the context of, um, you know, a parent child relationship that, that somehow if you started to add in money that the parent makes money by taking care of their child, Mm -hmm. that that it represents sort of this um, mixing of spheres that people don't like to have mixed together. Mm-hmm. So that's that's interesting to me to have those separate spheres. And I wonder if that's because on the social side of, well, okay, on the money transaction side of things, transactions are right now zero sum. Mm-hmm. So I've been <laughs> in my Hacker Noon, I don't know if you've read any of my yeah. Hacker Noon articles, but Sometimes I've been on about yeah. zero sum kind of transactions versus additive only transactions in this in economics things right now are zero sum so if i buy a good i give somebody money mm-hmm. and in exchange i get a product but i lose money mm-hmm. um in a social setting the exchange is a little bit less clear mm-hmm. and it's a little bit less zero sum on i'm talking about like the ledger side of economics in a social interaction, it's a little bit less zero sum because mm-hmm. I'm taking care of my child and my child is being taken care of. And this is a meaningful, purposeful and rewarding experience mm-hmm. for both of us. So there's not like this win loss. Right. So maybe part of what feels you know, wrong about it. What I think um, is missing from that size that you mentioned is like, it's not just the exchange and the, yeah, it's not just the exchange of labor. Like people actually do find meaning in shining shoes and in driving people, helping people. Like mm. whenever you like interview like all of these service people, they probably wouldn't say that that it's just my job. Like I'm actually making people's days better. Mm. So like, how do you like record that? You know, how do you really like record like put a value? Meaning your value. Yeah, put a value to that. And that is one point. And another point is also. That's again is like a very Western versus Eastern value system thing, but like in Vietnam, there's no such thing as like family versus strangers. Everyone is family, like mm. it's in the language. So like I would call you uh, little sister because you're a little bit younger than me, um, and even though we're not related, so it's it's like it's already ingrained mm. in the culture and in the language that we all in, in this together, mm-hmm. and. It's not just like in my interest to make sure that my neighbor's house like doesn't get robbed, you know, like it's not just in their interest. It's also in my interest because I don't want my neighbors to get into trouble because we all in this together. Um, And I think that's beautiful. (laughs) I mean, that's that's absolutely beautiful. Right. Like, I think I think the most ideal world would be one that sets itself up as like, yes, we're in this together. This is win win that we're trying to achieve we're trying to get everybody to succeed together um so the question is can we come up with a system that allows everybody to win-win together but also rewards effort at the same time Mm -hmm. and I think that that's possible but I don't think it was necessarily the case prior to digital currencies on the economic side I think culturally that happens yeah and also, I would be careful with saying win-win because we 
by de facto we're very not win-win you know like a very unequal society in the first place um i recently read this book uh basically it's it's it, it talks about how win-win it's just like the silicon valley tech people's like dogma of like saying that like i'm actually not benefiting from you like you can also benefiting but like the magnitude the magnitude of the the benefits is like totally different. different like you benefit this much but i benefit like a whole lot so yeah how do you how do you also like deal with a society and with a system that's like doesn't put everyone on equal footing in the first place like when you were born you were just not born with like equal set of rights even though it's such a beautiful sentiment right like it's it's great to think that everyone is born equal but people are not and you know like it really depends on like circumstances and things that outside of your control and well i mean yeah. okay so i'm going to play devil's advocate with you now too <laughs> great so um it's still better to have like here's a little bit of benefit for this person and a lot of benefit for this person that's still benefiting everyone. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're still not even at the yeah. point where that's happening yet. It's definitely great. Like it's definitely better for things to go better, even just a little bit. I think the thing, the, the, I'm going to have to remember the, do, uh, the author's name, but the book is called the winner winners take all. Mm. And it talks about how this kind of mentality um, really plays a like like a disservice to people who stand a lot to lose. Like maybe one out of ten times they're gonna win, but a lot of times because of this mentality, they actually lose more than the people who say, "Oh, just win win," because. Um, so I think one example that he came up with with um, I think it was how Asana was started as like this like really like how do you improve productivity right like that was the big question like I'm going to make the world a better place how like and my way of making the world a better place is to help improve productivity great awesome sentiment and then he goes out and Asana is now great 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 like many countries in the world and many different teams in the world are using asana as a productivity tool the problem though is that the world is actually a lot more you know productive than it used to be like it's 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 not really a problem that needs the most of your attention like actually most people are like two or three times more productive than they were decades ago but they are not paid more like that was like the real problem that the author in the winners take all book was talking about like you know two or three times more productive but not two or three times uh higher mm -hmm. you know standard wage and so like by just like talking all about this winner this win-win situation you're missing out on like the real problem like you 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 have a lot of time on your hand and you have a lot of options to choose like how do you focus your effort on the things that will yeah like make the society better as a whole as opposed to like make also you better uh at, like first and foremost and then everyone else a little bit better or a little bit less doesn't matter you know it's um i don't know how to solve the 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 the, the problem of inequality like I, I don't think anyone can claim to to solve that but at least understanding that 
you have to always contextualize it into the bigger picture of things and like you know doing it be, being aware of, of of the problem to start with it um, that's how you start to be in the in that to that's how you start to 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 even start thinking about the problem and maybe solving them mm-hmm. yeah so um for hacker noon this is, <laughs> this is like kind of a funny jump yeah back, but i'm just thinking I mean, like i gonna... love talking to you by the way because like you've just <laughs> very like i remember my days of being like in the academia like more education feel like we talk a lot more about things like this than like now like my day-to-day is more like like a lot more in the weeds <laughs> of like business like yeah. stuff like payroll like how do i make sure that i understand this business plans versus that business plan yeah yeah it's much less more well i'm enjoying yeah. talking to you too <laughs> yeah. because i think we both have kind of one foot in each world or yeah. like some background in each world but uh what so so turning back to Hacker Noon yeah. and taking these theories and putting them into <laughs> practice like we talked about very early in this conversation yeah um how are you, have you thought about that in the context of this new shift of Hacker Noon? Because you're, so you guys are leaving Medium because they're trying to control, basically because they're trying to be a walled garden. They're trying to control the monetization model. They're not wanting you to monetize in the way that's actually beneficial for you. Right. Even though it might be beneficial for their ecosystem as a whole. Right. Um, have you thought about this kind of idea of, you guys winning and how much that winning means relative to um, your writers as well. Because I'm definitely under the impression that the move is kind of seen as a win-win type idea Mm -hmm. where um, you guys are gaining your independence and ability to keep a sponsorship model. Mm -hmm. But you're writers and contributors are also benefiting because they're allowed to have more, they're allowed to build up more of a platform for themselves on Mm -hmm. your site by collecting emails or encouraging people to buy their books or whatever it might be. Right. Um, So I guess the question is, have you thought about this dynamic of win-win and Mm who does stand to win more or are you winning equally between you and your and your contributors? And I guess I'm putting you in an uncomfortable question potentially, so you don't have yeah. to answer if you don't want to, but. No, I think that is a great question. Like there's no doubt that this move benefits um, us as a business for sure. Mm-hmm. And in order to be sustainable as one business, you can't just ignore that whole you know, like doing the writers right, like like I say from the very beginning, because that is going to be, mm-hmm. you know, the future of our business. Like whether or not we stand to succeed or not depends on how well we can serve the writers. So the way I think about it is we have to move off of the medium serving our own interests very first because without it there would be no hacker noon you know like we would not be able to sustainably run this business at all like who's going to pay all of these people um you know spending all of their time because all of the writers our writers they have their own businesses you know so they also hacker noon it's just part of the much much bigger picture of their own life of their own career mm-hmm. so hacker noon how hacker noon can fit into that would be a question and a problem that we would have to solve but for us 
as a business, we have to move off medium because it's in our best interest not to be controlled by someone else and, you know, like not to cut off our wings. <laughs> so now we try building bit by bit and it, it, it starts with building our wings first. Now, after we've done that, I think one of the things that I'm, I'm most interested in and most excited about is talking about the future of Hakanoon being so truly decentralized. And what that means, it can mean like everyone who has contributed to Hakanoon would have a point system, would have some kind of mm -hmm. rewards system that would actually build into the fact that they would own a little bit of Hakanoon. Like that would be one way we can go. Another way, like David has talked a lot about it, is how do, do you think even more deeply into things like equity uh, of the site and how can that be decentralized to the people who have contributed to the site? But that is like really, really like two or three years, you know, mm -hmm. much more in the future. Right now, we're going to focus on moving off medium, making sure that we're serving the writer's intent of publishing on Hakanoon, which is having more audience, having more people's uh, eyeballs on their piece, and how do you like like 10x, you know, the people who mm -hmm. will normally read the writers without publishing on Hakanoon, 10x, 20x, maybe even more than that. Um, building their own audience is also important to us. So, you know, what is a platform? really if you don't even have access to the people who use your platform like, yeah. and and that goes with our writers too like each writers bring in a little bit of their own audience to ours so they deserve to have access to to their own readers with their own audience so i think having very transparently kind of a method for people to go back and forth between writers and readers is 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 important yeah. Uh, but I'm excited like for the far future, as I say. And I'm I'm not gonna promise anything like that like a lawyer might look into and be like, Oh, you shouldn't have said that. <laughs> but I think it's pretty safe and fair to say that that is um in line. Like having writers owning a little bit of Hakanoon um is, is definitely part of our plan. Yeah. Yeah. Well that's beautiful. <laughs> and I think that that's um Maybe a good place and a positive note to leave off on. So, Ling, thank you so much for thank you so much. being here. So I love fun. this conversation. So. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. <laughs>